Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Um, if you have maybe come in the last month for the first time, you're like, who is this guy? Um, my name is Dave Adair. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Frontline Edmond. Frontline is one church with five congregations. And in August, I had the honor of preaching at some of the different front lines, and they send their love, Frontline Downtown, Shawnee, and uh, South. I got to be with all those guys. And then my family and I got to take a vacation, some of our favorite places with some of our favorite people. We got to spend some time in Colorado, and it was beautiful, but we miss you all, and I'm happy to be back. I was here last week, um, but I'm really excited to get back into preaching, and we are in our second week of a series that God willing will last maybe 40 weeks as we explore together the book of First Corinthians. So uh, you, know, you know the play. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me, we'll pray with one another, for one another, and then we're going to jump into the body of this letter. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be here with my friends this day and in this weekend where we really recognize rest. Just stop and remember that even in this moment, we're invited to rest in you that your yoke is easy. Following you is a, is a perfect fit for us. Your burden is light. So Spirit, we pray that you would help us be present, that the cares that we carried in, we cast on you, and, and the things that wait for us after this service is over, that we would trust you, that you're going to be there with us, come what may, and that in this moment, we can be with each other, with you, hearing your word, and expectant that you're in control and you have beautiful things to, to take hold of for our lives. And I pray for, for me personally that you would just in a real way help me point to you and, and serve my friends. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen. This week, the scene that came to mind is a scene that is familiar to us. You've seen it in like a dozen war movies or episodes of television, or maybe you're somebody in here that's experienced it in real life. But it's that scene of a battlefield where somebody's laying on the battlefield and, and a soldier cries out, medic, you know, cries out for help, that there is somebody on the ground, wounded, sick, that is in need of aid. I think this is a useful picture, a helpful picture to us as we begin to explore 1 Corinthians, to really grasp 1 Corinthians and understand the dynamics of what's happening. I think this is like a good illustration for us to keep before us. The church in Corinth, in a real way, is sick with sin. It's been wounded by the world. It's laying on the battlefield of life, and there's lots of stuff that is broken, lots of symptoms of sickness. It's a hot mess. It's a dumpster fire. And, and the Apostle Paul, like a wise nurse or a skilled physician, he's running to the aid of this church. But the question is, like with everything that is going wrong, with like the, the multitude of, of things that are issues in this church, the question is like, where does Paul start? Where, where to begin? And as Paul assesses this church, there are so many things that are wrong that need attention, like widespread sexual immorality, false teaching specifically relating to, to the resurrection, getting drunk at the communion table, 
like worship gatherings that are so chaotic, there's just no order and, and nobody's benefiting at all. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so where, where would Paul even begin? And where Paul does begin is really, really meaningful and important for each of us to see. It's not where I would begin. I suspect it's not where any of us in our own wisdom would think to start. But Paul, in his wisdom, led by the Holy Spirit, intentionally starts in the only place to start. This, this week, I, I spoke with a few nurses, and, and one was a, a head nurse for an ICU unit, and she explained to me the importance of knowing the difference in a few things when um, you begin to treat a patient, and she introduced me to a few terms, and the terms are a primary problem and a symptomatic presentation. And as you treat a patient that has multiple things wrong, has sickness or wounds that are multifaceted, it is, it's essential to discern between the primary problem versus a symptomatic presentation. Just as an extreme example, somebody might come into the hospital with a cough, and if it was just me, I'd say, well, take a cough drop, you're good, right? But maybe, just maybe, that is just a, a presenting symptom and you need to get down to the root of the issue of the primary problem, which would be cancer of the lung. And a cough drop is going to do no good. See, Paul must start somewhere, and where he begins is with the primary problem that is a base problem, in fact, a root problem, that in a real way, every other sick symptom of sin is related to in this church. And the issue that Paul starts with is disunity and division. And it's not a random starting place. He's inspired once again by the Holy Spirit. And in wisdom, he's starting with Corinth and with us, addressing the issue of division and disunity. And again, because it's a primary problem, it's related to every other aspect of brokenness. And so we're going to look at this text line by line, and we're going to look at it in three movements or three points. And so together, let's look at how Paul begins and as he begins to address this primary problem, he begins one with an appeal for unity. Look at these first verses. I appeal to you, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I think it's helpful first to, to really lean into Paul's tone as he begins the body of this letter. I appeal to you, brothers. Appeal here, it's a word that carries this seriousness, this intensity. In Greek, it's parkaleo. And, and that is all through the New Testament, or parakaleo. And it means to, to urge or to beseech or to exhort, or most commonly, simply, it's translated beg. We went through the Gospel of Mark together, uh, uh, you know, what was that, last year? And this term, this Greek term, appeared a lot, specifically in the context of somebody that had a severe problem or a, a, a real deadly disease that was coming to Jesus for healing. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 40, then a man with leprosy came to Jesus, Jesus and Parkaleo begged, appealed him to be healed. 
So the same urgency that if we had leprosy and we came to the one man we had faith that could, could heal us with that intensity, that urgency, that heart of begging and pleading for healing, that's the same heart Paul right now is carrying to this church in Corinth and he's pleading with them, pleading with them. Church in Corinth, I am begging you, is what Paul's carrying in his heart. But he's also pleading in urgency and he's begging, but he's also rooted in, in deep love for this church. We're going to see that there is just so much wrong, and yet what is consistent in Paul's heart, which is a reflection of the very heart of Jesus for this church, is that he has grace and mercy and love and care for this church. Brothers, could be translated brothers and sisters, Paul is appealing in the love of the family of God. So he's making this appeal, and in this appeal, rooted in the love of of Christ for this church, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the name of means in the authority in. So everything Paul has to say is rooted in the authority of Jesus. It's like a messenger that's coming with a a sealed message from the king who's simply reading the heart of the king to give a charge or direction. Paul is not sharing in this portion of scripture something that's just important to Paul. This isn't his pet passion project or his hobby horse. Unity is not just a Paul thing. Paul is saying, hey, I'm coming actually with the very heart of God. I'm coming in the authority of Jesus. In the Gospels, the the life and the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has a promise and a prayer regarding the church. And the promise is that he's going to build the church and the very gates of hell, death itself, are not going to prevail or be able to stand against the church. That's the promise. The, The church will spread like wildfire across the globe and change it. It's going to be the kingdom of God experienced on the earth. God's primary means of bringing about his kingdom, his people, that he changes by grace, that he saves, that he makes his family. But there's a prayer also. And the prayer of Jesus regarding the church is the church would be unified. Before Jesus goes to the cross the night before, he prays this for the church. He prays this for us. This is John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays to his father and says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples that are with with him in the moment. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you and me. He's praying for us in this moment. That they may all be one just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Jesus expected church growth, but Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, before he walked and laid his life down freely on the cross, he prayed that the church would be unified. And that in that unity, that unity would be so glorious, it would shine like a light into the darkness of the world. And that, that people who do not know Jesus and the good news of who he is and what he's done would see the love and unity in the church and say, there is a God in heaven. The, the, 
I don't know what they believe. I don't know so much about that community of people, but I know that something's different, and if there is a God, they know him. That's the prayer of Jesus. So what does that unity look like? Well, Paul says that it looks like all of you agreeing that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and judgment. Agree here means literally to like speak the same things or say the same things. Historically, it's a term that was described to, uh, used to describe groups that were on the same page, that were free from fractions. It means moving in the same direction, being in one accord, not talking past one another or over one another or in contradiction to one another, but a group that's unified in harmony. When Paul says that there be no divisions, that word also translates to, to schisms, to gaps, to cracks, to fracture, fractures and, and factions. And he's calling the church in this moment to, to heal, to move together. He's saying, hey, stop looking for an argument among the community of God. Stop looking for ways to be offended. Stop picking fights. Stop searching for ways to divide. Stop going about the work of breaking down. I have, I have two boys. One is 10 and one is three. And my daughters are here on the front row. They can attest to this, right? And, and my 10-year-old, he's, he's really gifted and skilled at building. And that's been like a, a, a real gift for him for a long time. He was in on Lego like early, right? And he had a passion for building things. And that's kind of expanded at this point in his life. And he likes to build models. Or sometimes he just takes random stuff in my tools and he builds something. It's, it's great. He loves to build. My three-year-old loves to destroy. He has the spiritual gift of decimation and destruction, right? To the great dismay of my 10-year-old, right? And so the 10-year-old goes about building things, and then the 3-year-old comes later and just destroys them. And that's okay for a 3-year-old because he's immature. It's not okay for a 23-year-old or a 33 or a 43 or a 53-year-old. And Paul is, is lovingly confronting this church who is filled with people who, who do not go about the mature thing in the family of God of building one another up, of building beautiful things, but like selfish toddlers who don't quite know how to engage, they go about in frustration breaking things down. And Paul's saying, hey, grow up, mature. Go about the work of building unity. Be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Be united in thought and deed. That what you carry in your head and your heart and your hands actually be united in the gospel is what Paul's saying here. Hey, as you live with one another, you don't individually take your preferences and your opinions and your worldview, and you individually take what you hold dear and, and take the gospel and try to shape and form it to fit your preferences and your opinion and your worldview. But each of you together, you are shaped and formed by Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And your worldview, your preferences, your opinions are, are subjected to, to the kingdom and your king. Or they're shaped and formed to follow the passions and directions of Christ. And it's important here to say Paul isn't calling for uniformity where everybody looks exactly the same and thinks exactly the same about every little thing. 
It's not some creepy like Smallville thing where everybody just seems to be a clone of everybody else. That's not the beauty of the church. Paul's calling for something that's far more powerful that we're united under Jesus in such a way it's so intense that secondary things just have no power to divide because the main thing, who Jesus is and what he's done and following him is so very important to us. I came across a clip this week, and if I, if I really would have thought about it, I would have had Christina and Hunter and Ryan come up and do this in person, um, but uh, maybe, maybe for their benefit. I'm just going to show you a video of an illustration. It's like 20 seconds that actually, I think, in a beautiful way conveys what Paul is calling the church to, something richer than we might imagine. Let's watch this together. As the deer panted for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Now we're going to harmony. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. That is beautiful, man. I feel like I should go to church. <laughs> That guy said, I feel like I need to go to church, Um, which is good. That's good, even on Labor Day weekend. Um, That's just a simple illustration, but, like, sometimes we can think of church unity as being kind of like a, a simple thing. Maybe it's sentimentality, where it's like we just focus on really sweet things and and not address divisions. Or maybe, again, we just need to be in unison and uniformity where we're all the same. And Paul is saying, and I don't want us to miss this, is this is a richer, more beautiful thing where we do have differences, but we come together with different giftings and maybe even different views of secondary things, but we're together in such a way that it, it's, it's a miracle that happens nowhere else besides the church where people that have nothing in common are together in family love because we've been adopted by a heavenly father and we're brought together in all our differences racial economic political anything that you can imagine but we are one and that oneness resounds in the song of faith and obedience in jesus in rich beautiful harmony and to lean on that clip even heavier that people hear that and they think i want to go and be a part of that I want to engage the church because it's the life of God that's found there. See, this is where Paul begins because this church is coming apart at the seams. And they knew they had issues in Corinth. They had written a letter to Paul that Paul is writing to in response. They had, they had sent for help in a real way. As they laid on that battlefield of life, they had called out for help and talked to Paul about disunity they had regarding their view of communion and, and their view of marriage and their view of spiritual gifts and their view of the resurrection. But they hadn't told Paul the whole story. Paul hears firsthand about deep divisions in this church. That leads us to the second thing we need to see, the obstacles to unity. Verse 11, Paul writes, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. What's going on here? When Paul writes, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's 
quarreling among you, the natural question is like, well, who's Chloe? What's going on? And best we can tell, theologians will say, Chloe was this successful businesswoman, and she had her base of operations in the city of Ephesus, and that is where Paul is living at this time and the place from which he's writing this letter. So he's pastoring with the Ephesian church at this moment. But Chloe, in kind of her boss business empire, actually has dealings and business dealings going down in Corinth. So she sends some people for a season that work for her to Corinth to do some business. These people are Christians, and so they plug into the local church in Corinth. And then when they come back to Ephesus, they just straight up tattle to Paul about the hot mess that is happening. They're like, we got to talk to the Apostle Paul because this is messed up, right? So they come and they're like, hey, you need to write a letter because there's some things going on. There's some divisions, quarreling, infighting, disunity. And Paul says, as it's been reported to him, that this is really taking on a weird and bizarre form. Verse 12, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So on the surface, this church is is fighting and dividing over aligning themselves with different leaders. I follow Paul. There's this team Paul, this Paul contingent. And the Apostle Paul planted this church, and he's obviously like a brilliant theologian. The Apostle Paul wrote like 25% of the New Testament. Seems like a guy that you would want to be on his team, right? And so these people are, are loyal to and are identifying with Paul's leadership. And maybe that's perhaps because he is so rich in his theology. Maybe Team Paul were like the doctrine dorks and the Bible geeks of the church, right? And I love you doctrine dorks and Bible. We are so blessed by you, right? Like some of you, you write an email and you're like, hey, can we do a 52-week Sunday school Bible study of the book of Leviticus exploring the sacrificial system of, of, of the, 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 the temple and that give us insight into the new covenantal implications of the atonement and, and learn a little Greek on the side. And you're like, you, if you just got excited, you would be Team Paul right? And if you're like, I don't know what he just said, you would be in one of these other groups. But Team Paul, they have loyalty and affinity, and they, are, they have elevated the leadership of Paul, who planted this church, and theologians are going to tell us they probably really appreciated his deep and rich theological mind. And then we have the contingent that's like, I follow Apollos, And when Paul left this church in Corinth to go do some more church planting and strengthening, Apollos came in as like the second leader, the second pastor of this church. And what we know about Apollos from the New Testament is that this dude could preach the paint off the walls. Like he he had a very popular podcast, right? (laughs) But... He wasn't quite as sharp theologically as Paul. We have instances in Scripture where some church leaders pull Apollos aside and they're like, yeah, you can dial it in a little bit here. That's not quite right, you know? But, but Team Apollos didn't care. They were like, man, this guy can preach. And under his leadership, the church is blowing up. And if we're honest, like, Paul's preaching is boring. And Paul said that even about this church in 2 Corinthians, I believe chapter 10, that, that people in this church would say that Paul's writing is really strong and fire, but his preaching is weak and boring. Exhibit A is Acts 20, when Paul is preaching and a young man, a boy, is so bored he falls out a window and dies. <laughs> and then Paul goes outside and raises him from the dead and then preaches the rest of the night into the morning, to which you would be like, Paul, read the room, right? You know, like... Your preaching just killed somebody, but then you turned it around and raised him from the dead, 
wrap it up, you know, end with the resurrection. But Paul preached, the boy's probably like, still? You killed me once and now I have to sit here until dawn and listen to you? You know? But Paul had a reputation of, of not being the most exciting preacher. And Team Apollos is like, man, this guy is, is captivating. He's insightful. And under his leadership, the church is growing. And then we have another group that's, that's Team Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic of Peter. And theologians tell us that probably some point in time, the Apostle Peter with his family visits this church, ministers there for a season, and of you know, does some ministry, baptizes some people, and you have a group that's like, hey, we're team Peter. This guy walked with Jesus. This guy walked with Jesus on water, right? He, he, he saw some things firsthand. He was, he was there, an eyewitness of the, the resurrection and the ministry of Christ. And then finally, and I really appreciate Carol's inflection when she read this, you have the, the I follow Jesus group, Right? Which on the surface, you're like, no, that's the team we all want to be on. That's the right team. But take note that they're included by Paul with everybody else without any distinction. And commentators are going to tell us that this might actually be the least healthy group in the church because they consider themselves so spiritual, so mature, that they need nobody. They need no leader. They need no church community. They just need Jesus. And what you experience here is there's just this party-minded spirit alive in the church. Walking into the church in Corinth and experiencing them would be like walking into a high school cafeteria in the 80s or 90s. (laughs) Everybody's clicked up. You got the jocks and the preps and the punks and, you know, the geeks and everybody has their group and they're all divided and they're all, uh, you know, just experiencing hostility towards one another. And Paul is shining a light on this. But this is just the surface. It seems dysfunctional and broken, but Paul is, is pointing this out because this is just an expression of a deeper brokenness that's happening because below the surface, there's something actually just more insidious and uglier than even just that. Vaughn Roberts in his book, Authentic Church, he, he helps us kind of understand the culture of Corinth because we have to understand the culture of Corinth to understand the brokenness of really what's happening and the genesis of this division. This is what Roberts writes. Traveling philosophers were common in Greek society each proclaiming their particular brand of of wisdom for life. And those with academic pretensions would attach themselves to one of these and to the school of philosophy they represented. It was a form of one-upsmanship, with different groups arguing for the superiority of their way of thinking and intellectual heroes. So the culture of Corinth is a culture of division. This is how the city works. And you would have for ages philosophers that would come and and proclaim their worldview, their way to understand wisdom and the good life. And part of the culture of Corinth was you kind of hitching your wagon to this philosopher. And it was a, a personal point of pride in a way that you judged yourself compared to others. And you, you teamed up following a certain philosopher and you considered yourselves better than everybody else. And it was just a, a system of fostering pride that brought about division. And that's what's happening in the city of Corinth. But what 
is, is happening here is that the church in Corinth has been infected with this prideful division and they're hijacking these leaders. Note, none of who are actually fostering this division. This is not Paul's heart or Paulus' heart or Cephas' heart or, or certainly not Jesus' heart, yet there's a warp of Christian leadership that's there to serve where now the church is connecting themselves to these leaders with the heart of pride and division to form an identity that's not rooted in the love of Jesus, but the identity of, of self-proclaimed wisdom where I can feel better about myself in comparison to others because who I follow. And so just imagine you're part of this church in Corinth and you have a neighbor and you invite them to come to your community group or come to church on a Sunday. And it's only going to take them a minute to see that, hey, what's going on in this community has no difference than what's going on in everywhere, everywhere else in the city of Corinth. There's division out there and there's division in here. And the very prayer of Jesus that the unity of the church would proclaim his love is going unanswered because of the danger of division. And we're going to see this again and again in 1 Corinthians, but you know, think about the fact that this is a 2,000-year-old letter written to a small church in a context that's totally different than ours in so many ways. Yet, if you're like me, if we just slow down a, lit, a bit, like this is really significantly, powerfully, prophetically speaking into the life of the church in our congregation and, and certainly the church in the West over the last two years? Have we not struggled and wrestled with a culture of division and polarization that's infected the church in ways that feel like a gut punch? There are people who three years ago we sat with in a hospital bed and held their hand for hours and prayed with them, shed tears together. And then because of an approach to exactly how we were going to wear a mask for a few months, we divided. Divisions over assumed motives. You didn't pray for this cultural issue soon enough? You prayed for this cultural issue too soon? You only prayed for this cultural issue and you didn't preach about it? When I've been reading this, just for me personally, Anna and I have a, a Jeep that we have a love-hate relationship with. And the Jeep always has check engine lights that come on. And I was, I was just thinking of my own personal check engine lights. Like if, when I'm reflecting on the truth being shared with this church 2,000 years ago, what warnings are coming up in my life? Are we withdrawing from a relationship with another Christian who holds a different political perspective than us? That's a, that's a check engine light. Something could be fundamentally broken. When you find yourself constantly critical and judgmental of other Christians for their differing viewpoints on all, all sorts of matters that are ultimately, in light of the gospel, of little importance, that's a check engine light. For when we assume motives of others and assume the worst, 
See, the bottom line is it's one thing for people in the city to divide over issues that are not of ultimate importance. Like, there are people in my neighborhood that used to be friends that aren't friends anymore because of a school board race. And that's sad. And yet, in the community of God, if that kind of division is happening over secondary issues, our very witness and mission is at stake. If a church is disunified, like nothing can move forward, nothing can grow. If we hope to multiply gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness, and there's division and disunity over secondary things, there's no hope for that mission to move forward. So where do we go? And Paul, who is somebody who never got over the wonder of Jesus, takes us where he is always going to take us in this book. The third thing we need to see, the answer for unity. Verse 13, Paul asks, is Christ divided? Or was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul, as we're going to hear again and again, like has his black belt in rhetorical questions. <laughs> Is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? The answer is obviously no. And I love that Paul, as Paul, is specifically going after Team Paul, <laughs> right? It just gives you a, a heart into his humility and heart to serve. Like, hey, it's not about me. Don't get it twisted, Paul's saying. It's about Jesus. And my ministry, ultimately and always, is all about Jesus. And baptism is important, but it's not the primary thing. The primary thing's about who Jesus is and what he's done and how God has been fully revealed to us in his son. And I, I just love that verse that he, he has. It's an aside about baptism. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, right? Remember that, that Paul is dictating this letter. So I just picture Paul sitting there and there's a scribe taking it down. And, and then Paul's saying, I thank God I baptized none of you. And the, 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 the scribe is like, you baptized a few. And Paul's like, oh yeah, you know. But besides that, and the, the scribe's like, no, the house of Stephan. And he's like, oh yeah, them too. Paul's like hurting feelings here, you know? Like, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. You know, and there's like 13 people in the church that are like, oh, Paul forgot that he baptized me, you know, <laughs> which I've been there. It's a, not a good feeling. But the point is, it's not about who baptized you. It's, the point is, whose name were you baptized in? You're baptized in the name of Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about him and the hope for the church to, to be unified, to be healthy, to be actually a light of the love of God means that it's always about him. That's Paul's message. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the power of the cross be emptied, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's saying, hey, it's not about me being the best preacher. I don't have to be the best messenger. I just have the best message. The truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and how that changes everything for each and every one of us. And so there's an invitation for the church to always keep before us the primary thing of the gospel. 
that we together would come to the threshold of the, of the manger and see that baby laying in a cradle, the very Son of God who had left the splendor of heaven and, and laid down that glory and has taken on flesh to be with us in this squalor, in that mire, in that manure-filled cave. He was born. And you see the very generosity of God in the flesh. And then that just lays waste to our consumerism. It would divide us. And we say, well, maybe my preferences can be laid down for the unity of the church because Jesus left heaven to come to earth in love for us. It takes us to the very foot of the cross where we look up and we see our Savior willingly staying there. He could have said a word and an army of angels would have come down and wreaked havoc. And yet he, he held firm in love for us and, and just experienced great division. Division from honor and, and hung there naked. Division from comfort and experienced just the full facet of every pain one could endure. Division from the very presence of his heavenly father for the first time as he experienced the weight of our sin. And when we see that love, like doesn't that lay waste to our selfishness that would bring about division and disunity? And as we focus on the wonder of gospel, it takes us to the threshold of an empty tomb. Where we in fear and wonder look at death being defeated and we take hold of a living Savior who is alive and, and building his kingdom and loving us, even at this moment, praying for us. And we say, who can compare? Like no Peter, no Cephas, no Paul. There's, there's no leader who can compare because he's not just a leader. He's our very Lord and Savior. And we look at that life that we've received from him, the one who beat and defeated death and sin on our behalf. And we're invited to, to fight for the unity that is a gift from him, the very life we receive. And we want to reflect and build that life in one another. There's some things that are essential that we can't divide over. Who Jesus is and what he's done, his divinity, that he's the very son of God the Savior of the world. That's a primary thing. Scripture. It's God's perfect word. That's a primary thing. The reality of the Spirit's work in and through the church today, that's a primary thing. But there are countless secondary things that, that might be important, but they are not nearly important enough to divide us as the family of God. Amen? Let's stand and pray. With a full heart and all honesty, Heavenly Father, I want to first, as just one of the pastors here, give thanks for these people before you that in so many ways they express and live out gospel-centered, Jesus-glorifying unity. And yet, we are imperfect as a people and we always have room to grow, so as just a part of this church, I come humbly before you and I just ask that we would grow closer to you and as we do grow closer to one another in unity that reflects your love and life into the cities in which we live. Would you do that for us? In Jesus' name, God's people said.